Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. In this episode, we talk to Ms. Lakshmi Kumar, Policy Director at Global Financial Intelligence, USA. She specializes on the issues of financial policy, securities investigation, regulatory governance, anti-corruption, and anti-money laundering and terrorist financing, including trade-based money laundering and real estate money laundering and so on. So recently, recently she co-authored GFI's report, Acres of Money Laundering, Why U.S. Real Estate is a Kleptocrat's Dream. The report highlighted why U.S. real estate market is a preferred destination to hide and launder proceeds from illicit activities. She has a Master's of Arts in Law and Diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a BA LLB from Nalsar University of Law, Hyderabad, India. Welcome to the show, Ms. Kumar. Um, thank you so much, Venkar. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to your questions today. Thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, Ms. Kumar, let's begin with the basics. People often say tax avoidance is not tax evasion. What is the difference between the two? Um, no, that's, that is a fantastic place to start because, you know, the best way to sort of different, differentiate the two is that tax avoidance is legally permissible ways to reduce your tax liability and tax evasion is illegal ways to reduce your tax liability. That is at its nutshell. Um, mm -hmm. I will say there is a broader philosophical question couched into it. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's often been the subject of a lot of discourse more recently, is that in tax avoidance, in the rules that we have as they are right now all over the world, are those rules fair? Because sometimes it feels at a philosophical level that there are one set of rules that benefit the, the wealthy, the, the, the high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals of the world. And there is True. another set of rules. And so I will say, as I talk about the difference, but also say that there is this larger issue that is baked into it as well. And it is not as simple as it would seem as it does on the face of it. Right, right. So then um, where does the concept of wealth protection fit in here? Uh, what is it? And what structures and mechanisms do the wealthy use to protect their wealth from being taxed? Again, you know, absolutely right. When you start, you know, when we talk about the terms wealth protection, it is really just a synonym for the word tax avoidance, or, or <laughs> if you are very underhanded about it, it is a synonym for the word tax evasion, wealth protection. So it's a question of, you know, how far you want to stretch it. And a lot of it, you know, essentially involves, as you said, the structures are key, but it is being able to tax take benefit of jurisdictions or countries that specialize in protecting your assets, which one can mean a couple of things. When you use the word asset protection, it means that one, it is not subject to taxes, which means you can protect wealth for generations. Two, right. it is not subject to being attached in a lawsuit. And this often comes up when there are divorce proceedings. If um, husband or wife or, you know, to spouses in a marriage or a relationship, civil union, are and it dissolves, are looking, looking to protect their individual assets that they've earned. And so that's another way you move. But a, what a lot of it does, in, in fact, is that it, it involves the movement of assets or money 
mm-hmm. out usually from your home country to another country. So let's say you're based in India, which is very close mm-hmm. to Singapore. You move your money to the British Virgin Islands or Jersey or somewhere else where they have laws that protect it, mm-hmm. uh, where they have where there are professional services designed to protect this. And so that's one is the jurisdictional element. The second element is this is the structures. And so you have trusts, LLCs, Panamanian private invest foundations. These are designed to protect your assets, often hide your assets from scrutiny from elsewhere. Um, it may in some cases it may also mean because you're able to shift assets outside. It is not always clear how often you're declaring these assets back to your taxman in your home country. And, you know, this is not to say that people then also don't use art, you know, buy expensive paintings, jewelry, yachts, homes, mm. houses. They, these are, you know, stocks. These are all ways to sort of diversify your asset portfolio, but also protect your asset portfolio. Right. Right. So, you know, uh few weeks back, the uh, Pandora papers were revealed and, uh, you know, were, were released. And uh, when the Pandora papers came out, it was shown that uh, South Dakota was a $367 billion tax haven, rivaling other famous tax havens. What makes it an attractive location? Um, that is a question that is puzzling many at the moment. And you know, it's not something you conventionally think as the go-to destination of the very rich. There aren't the lifestyle choices that, you, let's say, Monaco or Switzerland will afford Correct. the very rich. But what South Dakota does have is it has very friendly laws. It has mm-hmm. had this, and this is, you know, a product of living in a country like the U.S., where states get to make a lot of these laws. It is not, it does not come nationally. So it is not one law that applies. So states really are able to make laws that boost revenues that protect them. So in many cases, these trusts are designed to be generational trusts so they can be held in perpetuity. Um, They are tax-free. There is a way to obscure and hide your identity because you don't have to declare. There's no transparency around it. It is not easily accessible, this information. Um, It is an industry that is therefore shrouded in much secrecy because it is not regulated at the federal level. It is only regulated at the state level. So it doesn't have the same kind of money laundering and corruption scrutiny you would have had if it is regulated at the state level. And and sorry, the federal level. And the thing above all to remember is that whenever we see money being hidden, there is a great connection to both history and geography. And with Mm -hmm. the case of the US and South Dakota, you will, there is this preponderance you've seen of it being marketed and advertised to the political elite or high net worth individuals in the Latin America Caribbean region. And for both historical and geographic proximity reasons, the U.S. is a preferred destination to put money to hold assets because it provides ease of convenience, it is, a, it is, it is the largest economy in the world, and it is access to the U.S. financial system means access to the rest of the world's financial system. You, you won't necessarily see um, hmm. Latin Americans putting their money in the U.K., that you know, it doesn't have the same historical ties. It doesn't have that same geographic proximity. 
Correct. But the US does. And that's something to also consider when you look at South Dakota, because in the aftermath of the Pandora Papers, and even prior to that, one thing that the trust industry is, is, is seems, seems to have done is marketed itself very well in Latin America. They are a known commodity in a right. way that let's say in like the, let's say maybe the UK is more marketed or BVI is more marketed in India because of yeah. its historical connections. Or Africa. Or Africa. Or, you know, the UK is... is Middle East, is, Middle UK East is Africans. To, Middle East, Africa, um, South Asia, because of its, its historical ties and how it connections. is much more centrally located than South Dakota for a lot of people based in that true. part of the world. True, true. You know, what uh, puzzles me is that way back um, in 2009, Switzerland agreed to reveal the names of some 4,400 plus wealthy American clients to UBS, to US authorities. That blew open the Swiss banking secrecy. And more recently, I think about three years ago, there were headlines like the era of bank secrecy ends as Swiss start sharing account data, and which meant like other countries too, in addition to USA. So are you saying U.S. blew open the Swiss banking secrecy, but has alternative facilities in the U.S. itself. So what um, happened to the principles espoused then? And in what way are U.S. regulations, say, for politically exposed persons or others not in line with these international best practices? So that's a, um, a, that's, that's, that's a couple of questions in one question. Sure. So I'm going to try and answer them one by one. Sure. So on the first question on sort of the role of, of what it means and the fact that, you know, the Swiss banking industry. So what I will say is that it's interesting is that there has been a significant banking reform, whether it's on the side of Switzerland. And, you know, there was a problem with Swiss accounts, clearly, but also on the side of the U.S. to make sure there was equal reform. I think what Pandora Papers has really sort of exposed is the wealth management industry. And okay. it's exposed the role of that, whether it's in Switzerland, which I think everyone knew and suspect, but I think what it has also provided exposed and evidence is South Dakota, which a lot of people were not familiar with and just did not know that it was a hub of so much activity. And I think this really goes back to the heart of the issue, at least in the US, is because it is a federal country Mm -hmm. A lot of this, and if you look at the way the Financial Action Task Force has evaluated the U.S., it's, it's a clear distinction between the approach at the federal level, where they see this as a risk. They see sectors like this as a risk, where at the state level, this is just a way to bring money into the state and the economy. Um, no one is thinking about, is there a corruption risk? Is there a risk to U.S. national security? Is there a risk of money laundering? No one is thinking about that. Uh, now, on the question of um, politically exposed persons, it is shocking in that the U.S. does not have a clear definition of a politically exposed person. It is something only the banking sector, because of how vast the U.S. banking sector is, so the banking sector has taken it upon itself oh, to okay. look at internationally what's going on, develop it. But the U.S. has not updated its politically exposed standards in line with a lot of other countries all over the world. Um, so in that way, the US is really lagging behind, but it, in, in some ways it doesn't matter because the 
the, the requirements on politically exposed persons only apply currently to the banking sector. And so it's a huge problem when you see, you know, the trust industry or the real estate sector and, and politically exposed persons invest in it. But there are no obligations for the people that are responsible or the frontline managing those industries to actually check. So it's this, it's this, it's this complicated scenario where these people who should be checked aren't checked, but there is also no guidance to help them check. So it's, 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 uh, that means we're effectively doing nothing as a consequence. And that's what's <laughs> happening with the trust industry. It's happening with the real estate sector as well. Right. So, so that uh, is a you know good point, place to to segue into overseas real estates. Um, why is that a preferred route? You know, and this go you know in some ways it ties back to your previous question, which is about the banking sector. As you rightly said, for decades you could dump your money in a Swiss bank, no one would ask questions. You could dump your money, and you know again because you know in Singapore you're so close to the Philippines. You know, the Marcos family scandal is well known what happened with the Marcos family in the Philippines. They parked their money in, in bank accounts. You cannot easily do that today. You have to have a bank be complicit, willing to hide. There are a lot many more hurdles to be jumped. So if you are someone who has a lot of money, not all of it is gotten through legal means. The next place thing is you want a way to protect that money. You want it to retain value. So you don't want it to lose value. If you can make a profit off of it, great. And yeah. in many cases, you want it to um, have it be, be accessible for future generations. Now, real estate does all of that. Real estate is st stable. It often will turn a profit if it's located in a stable country with a strong rule of law tradition. It means your money will be protected. If you are a corrupt leader from a country that is authoritarian or has, doesn't have a democratic structure, it means the next person in power will steal your money if you keep it in your own country. So you move it to a place where you know the courts will protect it. There is a, and also you, you, you know, what better way? You get to flaunt your wealth and all your money in this beautiful palatial home but at the same time, no one really asks you questions. And that's the other thing is that it has all these benefits, but it has no measures to check illicit money coming in. And so therefore it becomes a perfect vehicle because you know they often say, if you buy a car, the moment you take it out of the showroom, it loses 50% of its value. That doesn't happen with the house. Right. And right. you know. <laughs> so, so what are the secret structures that real estates in the you know, uh, US uh, offers? You know, also mentioned that all cash purchases are possible. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, like, like you know, common people, if they take a little bit of cash, they have to, you know, they have to ask, answer 50 questions, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's absolutely true. You know, in the US, if you look at whether it's, which is, with residential, the numbers are somewhere along, we've had sort of various statistics over the years, but all cash purchases can rise, range anywhere between 19 to 29%. And we saw that, you know, for purchases under, of commercial real estate properties in the US, if it is, if it is under 2.5 million, 58% of all those purchases are done by overseas buyers and all in all cash in the US. Wow. Huge numbers. It Absolutely. is, it is. They are, they are very, very huge. 
very huge numbers. And that tells you um, the amount of money that's flowing in, the fact that it's a lot of money from overseas, and the fact that there are no questions being asked about. So the, you know, the fact that like Theodore Obiang, who was making 4,000 US dollars in salary, was able to buy a $100 million property portfolio without any questions asked in the US is how you end up with that situation. Wow. Oh my God. Right. So we talked about real estates. What about gold as a you know, money laundering tool? What's unique about it? What kind of international tra you know, transactions take place with gold? Um, you're absolutely right. I have to get to that question, but I just remembered you asked me about the secret structures of real estate yeah, and yeah, I have yeah, not yeah. answered that question. Yes, so yes, I, will, yes. I, will, I will answer that then I go back to gold because it just came to yeah, my sure, mind. Yeah, sure, sure, perfect. So with real estate, really what you're doing is you're buying it in the name of an LLC. So in the US, if you buy a property in the name of an LLC, you don't have to put down your name. So if Lakshmi is buying something in ABC and is... So the property is owned by ABC LLC. Currently, and you know, this is something that US law is finally changing. You don't have to put, I don't have to put my name anywhere on it. I can put my lawyer's name. I could put someone else's name, but you, I don't have to put my name. So for all intents and purposes, it just looks like the house is owned by this LLC or this trust, and you cannot find, tie it to me. The hmm. other problem with all of this is that is that for the very wealthy and very rich, they're not doing this on their own. It's not like you or me, when we try to purchase a house, you have to go to 20 different homes and stand right. and talk to the realist. No, you have a lawyer, you have someone you hire. And so very often the people who are helping people hide the money are people who are, whose job is to protect the rules, to protect the system. And because right. they know the rules so well. And that's, that's, there is that, that relationship. Like for instance, right. we saw that for people that are laundering money, over 80% of them use like an LLC, a corporation or a trust to hide identity as a way to buy property without anyone knowing. And, you know, that tells you sort of the, 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 the role is to provide as much distance as possible between you and the ownership of that property. And that's what it's doing. Right, um, right, right. So back to the gold question. So, uh, you know, what is unique about it and you know what kind of international transactions uh, take place with gold you know this is a really interesting question because this is something i have once struggled with and long tried to articulate which is that mm -hmm. gold is not new i think if you're south True. asia if you're anywhere in, in asia middle right. east it has a long association I mean, the Indian government has tried since independence to make Indians buy less gold. It is a, yeah. it is a measure that has failed miserably in the country. And yeah. what has happened is, and, and the reason it's gotten attention is that I don't think for many parts of the world that gold is used to hide money or is used to launder money is a new concept. But I think what is different is that in parts of Africa and Latin America, gold mining has been tied to drug trafficking. Gold mining is tied to armed conflict. And right. that is why it, there is this growing interest in, in, in the US and in Europe about the role of gold. Now added to that, gold is at its, during the pandemic was at its highest price point ever in its history. It is low weight, um, easy to move, um, 
it's it's of high value and in addition to that unlike if you're trying to move drugs or something else which is illegal gold by its very nature is legal and right. once you export it and move it to another country you can't tell if that gold was mined by a drug trafficker you can't tell if it was done in a place that is funding armed conflict and that's what we see you see gold moving from places of you know for example like you'll see gold moving from the democratic republic of congo but it will be smuggled into uganda and then it will be slapped with the ugandan label and then it will go to the uae but then when the gold is coming to the us it will have a swiss label on it so everything is hunky dory after that mm-hmm. and and that's what we see really with gold but what mm-hmm. this i think issue negates is that the focus of gold and the use of gold is primarily seen as an issue of conflict and environmental damage in the us and in europe but the truth is india and china are the largest consumers of gold Absolutely. indians have more gold than the federal reserve has gold <laughs> yeah. um yeah true and and the narrative of being used to fund conflict or it causing environmental damage is not something that appeals to in the indian in in within the indian policy maker apparatus or same thing with china both of them are concerned with how much gold is moving in and out by its citizens mm. um and so you know having to reframe that conversation around gold i think is important for it to have an impact because India and China will continue to buy gold without any problems without i i it it doesn't have the same associations the desire for gold is more than someone going to ask someone have you have you sourced this ethically your people mm-hmm. culturally are not going to ask those questions and i think making that distinction is is of vital importance before you it's you know it's the art of you know policies may be the same but the way you package them and the narrative you create around them have to be different and that's what we are really seeing when we when we talk about the issue of gold especially right um you know in your report um, you have a case that interestingly connects gold and us real estate uh, you mentioned that the that a fugitive uh, jeweler from india has apartments in new york held in the name of a trust whose beneficiaries are his family so tell us more absolutely i mean this was a fascinating case because it's the case of nirav modi who is it is india's largest trade based money laundering scam i mean it is fascinating because he he was considered this real upstart jewelry merchant who was going to t- you know india india produces jewelry in most of the world because it has artisanal talent second to none um but at the same time his idea was to sort of make the indian jewelry label more international and uh the truth was he was submitting false invoices and managed to defraud a collection of 30 banks which the government in the end had to bail out and all of that money he was able to pocket and hide it in real estate which he continues to own the government is not yet been able to get back all of it so you know because there is the question of having to now prove that the money that was used to buy real estate can be traced to all of these funds that he defrauded um indian the indian nationalized banks off um you know in and you know what he then was able to do is to protect the assets he has created a trust and the truth is with the trust is what you do is the idea of a trust is that if i create a trust i appoint a lawyer he manages the trust but the trust is for the benefit of someone else 
Right. So he's giving that trust to his children, his family. But a lot of the times um, you can still control the trust. If you give it to your children, it's meaningless because as a parent, you are the one that controls the trust. And this is in the first case. We also saw the case of, you know, Subrata Roy, who was accused of India's largest Ponzi scam. He defrauded millions of, you know, of the very poor and nearly bankrupted West Bengal. Um, he bought the Plaza Hotel in New York, which is such an oh, yeah. iconic building. And it took, you know, it took the Indian government many years to be able to force him to sell it, use the proceeds back, repatriate those proceeds back to India. So you do see this migration of wealth, um, of, of money that's acquired through ill-gotten means being moved offshore because it is a way to protect your assets because it is harder to get the courts to enforce a legal claim in an overseas jurisdiction. Right. So, you know, a few days back, uh, leaders of the G20 nations agreed to endorse the OECD deal on global minimum corporate tax of 15%. So, so we're we are sort of moving to the corporate side of this uh, aspect. Does the agreement have teeth? Even if it is implemented, how effective will it be? Oh, you're, you know, there's been a lot that's being said and a lot of it is rightful criticisms. Is that, yes, this is a global minimum tax, but this was this has been authored and led by the US and countries of the OECD. There's long been a question of why was the forum for this the OECD and not the UN. The OECD right. is a forum of rich developed countries. Why should they get to set the standards? And none of the developing countries were part of the negotiations. Uh, there was no transparency. If you wanted a truly fair process, the UN is the most appropriate forum because every country has a voice in the, in the UN. That is not right. the case with the OECD. And so, yes, there were multiple concerns because the truth is this 15% is not really 15%. In reality, it will become much lower. Um, the fact that prior to this, countries like Ireland, which are a big tax haven, um, have finally signed on to it, tells you that they are only, there's no reason for Ireland to do it unless it protects their own country's interests. Um, additionally, it low. Uh, um, a lot of developing countries wanted it higher than the 15% because they know they're going to get something lower. There's also the issue of, you know, the in terms of how distribution is going to be made under different pillars. And finally, the issue of digital services taxes, which is, which is important as well. So on a whole variety of fronts, and I know there are a lot of developing countries have signed it, about 136. But as things are being implemented, what we are seeing is that... Um, you know, leaders of within the G20 for Kenya and Nigeria haven't. And if you look at orig the original plan, there was an original plan that was actually put forth by India, which had the support mm -hmm. of Ghana and a whole host of developing countries. That was, ref they refused to consider that. The OECD refused to consider that plan. So yeah, the long and short of is this, yes, it's nice, but what this really does is protect the interests of all, uh, protect the interests of countries that already seek to gain the most from it. It does not protect the interests of countries that are looking to gain more and who deserve to gain more because they are still developing. Right, right. You know, um, hearing the um, corporate side and more about the uh, how the wealth management industry operates that you mentioned, right? Uh, my pet peeve is that, you know, 
the common man, the salaried class, is regularly, uh, if I can use the word harassed by banks in, in, in quite a few countries, asking them, it's not about the first time you ask for the KYC. It's about like update your KYC, maybe every year or whatever is the regulation, right? And for most of us, our details hardly changes. Maybe the employer changed, that's it. And our incomes and transactions are insignificant numbers. And in yeah. many cases, they, the, the, yeah, as they can just see from the bank account, the money that comes in is basically from the salary and so on, right? And badly people are able to balance the two, right? Uh, income and outflow. And our anyway, income and transactions are insignificant compared to the numbers that you talked about for the HNIs in these uh, havens. Do you have suggestion that stop the harassment of the common man, but tighten it for the real fugitives? Uh, that's a wonderful point. I can't tell you the number of times I've had my bank call me up and ask me um, if I am the real owner of the account, uh, if there's a suspicious, why the, my transactions appear suspicious. Um, the truth is there are ways that are inbuilt. Um, you know, banks are supposed to take what is called a risk-based approach, which is, you know, if you are a salaried person, your income looks regular, you are supposed to be considered lower risk, therefore subject to lower due diligence requirements. Um, however, you know, the truth is what we often see is that, you know, uh, banks are uh, weirdly are very risk averse when it comes to clients and accounts that don't offer the same profit margins and they are much bigger risk takers when it is clients and accounts that offer greater profit margins and that in a nutshell is the answer to why you see less or more scrutiny sometimes right and they also say that oh central bank asked me to do this with this periodicity yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so you know it's it's also a policy issue right why are it's uh, i don't know it's a pet peeve so you know no, and I'm taking I, I, the liberty I to say it like uh, it's 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 like this, right? Like imagine an uh, aeroplane manufacturer, and if every employee every day is stripped down or patted down and searched for taking possibly taking back a small nut or a screw or something like that, but and it happens every day for them, but someone else has a mechanism to take the whole plane out. No, and, and I think, you know, the truth is the central bank, banks very often offer policies. And, and the idea is that the risk-based approach. So if you are, let's say, a salaried person with a stable income, you should therefore be subject to lower due diligence checks. If you're a student and, you know, unless you're suddenly seeing the student is getting, I don't know, $5,000, $6,000 a month, that makes no sense because this person is a student. So, you know, they are typically subject to lower red flags. Now, the truth is um, banks, the individual banks, because they want to get away from fines, are at liberty to decide how they want to rate and categorize risks. One of the things we also know, and this is true, is that, you know, if you are, let's say, a customer that is transacting with what the bank considers to be a high-risk jurisdiction, so if it's a jurisdiction with a correspondent, you you then you automatically also it changes your risk profile and and that's and there is no question that you know a lot of this is a part and as you mentioned 
not only is uh, common people getting harassed, but the problem is that larger banks are slowly cutting off countries because they deem them high risk. So they're cutting off, you know, South Asia, Africa, parts of Latin America saying, we don't want to offer correspondent banking services to people true, here. True, and true, and true. those are serious consequences of this risk averse mentality. If it's for a small account where the profit margins are small, but when you have like a Mexican drug cartel or, or these <laughs> HNIs laundering money, no one seems to have a problem with the risk, risk, risk to reward ratio then. Right, right. So it's it's more transactional and more theater probably, right? As far as the common man is concerned, right? Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Ms. Lakshmikumar. Uh, it was a great uh, you know opportunity to get an insight on things which, for most of us, you know, we are once in a few years we read it on the headlines, uh, but uh, don't get an opportunity to see the. Uh, mechanics, what happens behind the scene and so on. And, uh, so it was a, absolutely a great opportunity to understand how these things work and why it is of concern both to the, to the governments as well as to the, to the people and the country's economy. Uh, we would definitely like to have you back on the time or maybe we could pick a topic to do a deep dive another time. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. This was an absolute joy. And, you know, I, it's always great when you get asked really probing, insightful questions. And um, this, this was a real pleasure to do. And I, I you know, I, I enjoyed myself tremendously and be very happy to come back um, another time. And, you know, thank, thank you for thinking of me for this. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in yet another episode of Move Conversations. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day.